great pleasure to welcome Stephen's uh, star uh, to speak to the last seminar of this term. Um, he's a journalist who has lived in Damascus uh, and elsewhere in Syria over the last five years, up until last year, 2012. Um, and he worked first as editor of the Syria Times and then as a freelance reporter. So he's reported the popular uprising from inside the country and has written the book for which the flyer is here, uh, Revolt in Syria, published by Hearst, who of course have close links, I have to say, the CCW program. Um, 12 pounds only, so incredibly good value. Um, and uh, he's also uh, written in uh, Los Angeles Times, the Irish Times, US Today, uh, Global Post, the Times, the Global Mail, Foreign Policy, the Washington Post, and the Sunday Times. Um, over the last year, September 2012 to April 2013, he was the Monk School Fellow in Global Journalism at the University of Toronto. Um, and today, his title is, and I've left the vital bit of paper behind, so I'll leave you, Stephen, to say exactly what it is, and then you can be sure you've got it right. Thank you very much, Sir Hugh. Thanks to everyone for coming. Uh, it's an honor to be here. <coughs> the title of my talk is How the Syrian Regime Sells Its War at Home. Um, I'm not quite sure if I'll speak for a full 45 minutes on that particular topic, but uh, perhaps it'll leave us more time for discussion about the broader kind of uh, situation in Syria as it stands today. I moved to Syria from Ireland in uh, early 2007. I graduated uh, from a master's degree in international security and conflict studies from the university, from Dublin City University, and essentially moved to Damascus um, with little or no plan. So any students of you here who are thinking of traveling abroad, uh, I encourage you to, to do so. Um, as Sir Hugh mentioned, a couple of months after arriving in Syria, I began working for Syria Times, which was and which is actually, it's, it's uh, started uh, functioning again recently, is a an English language version of the Syrian government's uh, news as they see it. Um, from the actual news perspective, Syria Times wasn't very valuable at all. Um, and I imagine I gained more from working in their office than they probably did from, from I. Um, but I think the six months that I spent there until 2008 was, was quite instructive in the sense that I got a sense for how, to what degree at that level, how the Syrian regime operates its, its propaganda, how it sells its message, um, and essentially what was reported in English and what went into their their pamphlet was almost direct translations of, of news that was reported in Arabic. Um, there was little or no original content in English. We need to go back a couple of decades, I think, to understand exactly how the Syrian regime sells its war at home. And the most pertinent point, as it stands today, is that uh, Hafez al-Assad, the former president and father of Bashar al-Assad, built the Syrian regime as it stands today. Bashar al-Assad, who became president in the year 2000, has inherited this system. There is a huge gap between building a state system 
in terms of security, in terms of administration and governance, and inheriting this. These are two very, very different things. Um, Hafez al-Assad came from a, an Alawite town in the uh, coastal mountains of Syria, not far from the city of Latakia, and he essentially came from, from, from nothing. Um, knew exactly what he wanted to do, and was equally gifted and brutal in getting what he wanted and in building a system. Um, that is important today because perhaps the chief question asked is why the Syrian revolution has failed slash uh, continued for so long. In, obviously in Egypt and Libya and other countries, uh, regimes were overcome in quite short uh, periods of time. Many people expected, myself included, that the, re that the regime would fall in Syria perhaps after a couple of months. It didn't happen. And even after being in Syria at that stage for four years or so, um, I, actually, I, I expected at that stage that the regime would, would fall within months as opposed to years. Today, of course, we the idea of the regime falling uh, or winning these, these, concepts, these concepts are, I think, less and less important than they were uh, two or three years ago. In 1995, the Lebanese, former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafi Hariri was assassinated. Sir, the Syrian government was thought to be behind this. This was a period of time that was, that destabilized the Syrian regime to a very, very significant degree, I think. Um, its forces were forced out of Lebanon, where they had been for 29 years. Uh, Syria was on this so-called axis of evil subgroup. And for the Assad regime, with Bashar al-Assad as president, this was the first kind of major uh, issue that they had to deal with. What did they do? How did they survive? They didn't do anything, aside from move the troops out of Lebanon. The Syrian regime is a reactive entity. And perhaps we can talk a little bit more about the chemical weapons issue later on, but this is also this plays more recently at least plays into that, that point. The Assad regime doesn't actively make big moves and doesn't actively invoke um, important issues on an international stage, I think. By 2008, uh, President Bashar al-Assad was a guest of honor of uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, the Champs-Élysées. Now, going from on the point of being invaded by the American administration in 2005-2006 to being a guest of honor in Paris two years later was a remarkable turnaround. The following year, as Prime Minister of Lebanon, Saad al-Hariri was invited to Damascus and went and, um, you know, essentially his, his father had been killed by elements linked to the Syrian regime. But the regime had proved so durable at that stage that they were able to essentially get Saad al-Hariri as Prime Minister of Lebanon to come to Damascus with his tail uh, basically between his legs. And, uh, you know, this is, this is really an important point, I believe, in terms of how durable the Assad regime is. 
back to working in Syria Times in 2007 and 2008. The building we worked in, we shared offices with the Tishreen, with Tishreen which is an Arabic uh, language title, one of three state newspapers uh, in, in Syria at that time. All news came from Sana, which is the, uh, the official state media. Tishreen, Al-Bas, and Al-Saura, and Syria Times, the English language equivalent, got all their news and information from Sana. Um, this is important in terms of stressing how centralized the message coming from the government was at that stage and continues to be today, I think. The journalists that worked in Syria Times and in Tishreen were not so much journalists as state workers looking for a stable income in a government sector for the rest of their lives. At that time, I think the average salary for those workers was about $250 a month. Um, you had people working in Syria Times that could speak little or no English. They were only there because their aunt or uncle or father or some relative could get them a job there. They had little or no journalism training, little or no English language experience, and uh, essentially shouldn't have, have been there. But this also gives you a sense of exactly how the regime operates, I think. So the, there, was, there was no real power in Tishreen or Syria Times or Al-Bas for the most part. And generally speaking, Syrians across the board, I think, see these state newspapers for what they are, which they present the government's uh, perspective, and, and that's about it. That's about it. They were important to the, to the extent that there is no free press, or at that stage there was no free press in Syria. And aside from, certainly in, 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 the, print, in the print media, people of course had access to Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya and regional Arabic uh, uh, media. But in terms of what was happening specifically in Syria, you had these three uh, titles, a couple of websites that were a little bit less, uh, you know, a little bit less pro-government, weren't controlled to the same degree as uh, the, the newspapers were. But this is where people got their news about Syria, uh, for the most part. An important aspect, I think, and it's, it's perhaps overlooked, and correct me if I'm wrong, the idea of cult of the personality. When any of you have been to Syria, I'm sure there have, maybe there are some people here, some Syrians. Perhaps the first thing, certainly the first time that you're, you're there, you, the first thing perhaps people remark about is the, the pictures of, of Bashar al-Assad and Hafs al-Assad everywhere. Um, they're not there for no reason. They're there for a specific reason. The, obviously, the idea is that in everything you do, in every, in, public, in every public space, there are eyes on you, essentially. So there's a lot more to it than just pictures of, of Bashar al-Assad um, everywhere. In March 2011, as the regime, as the revolution picked up, there was a full-on propaganda assault right from right from the beginning. In the first couple of weeks of the revolution, when you had protests in Deraan, in Banyas, and in one small protest in, in central Damascus, immediately you had this counter effort whereby you had Syrian government's uh, security cars, supporters driving around the streets of Damascus and other cities, shouting their support for Bashar al-Assad, holding up pictures of Bashar al-Assad, uh, decrying Israel, the US, the UK, all the, uh, the standard um, protagonists in the eye of the Syrian regime. Um, and at one stage, the same day, I believe, I think it was March 17, 2011, 
for the first major death toll came from Dera in the south. There was a massive, um, a massive rally in central Damascus. There were hundreds of thousands of people. Um, now, a question you, you might ask, it's an important issue, is that were all these people, did people come by themselves? Were they co-opted? Were they state workers? Were they students from school who were brought out onto the streets because you know, they, they had to do so? To a large degree, they were. Um, but there was certainly an element in those hundreds of thousands of people that came because they genuinely supported Bashar al-Assad. Because what he had done for a segment of Syrian society the middle class, uh, urban-based people, specifically in Damascus, to a lesser extent in Aleppo and the other kind of cities around the country, believed in Bashar al-Assad. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and this was this was a really this is an important uh, issue, I believe. Why did they support the regime? Why did they support Bashar al-Assad? Why did they oppose? in certain degrees what was happening in Dera, where you had this popular revolution and, and uprising, so to speak, um, in the beginning. Because these were people with relatively good jobs. These were people who could get loans from banks, who had bank accounts, who were able to dine in restaurants a couple of times a week, who were able to travel and holiday in Turkey once a year. Um, and they saw Bashar al-Assad responsible where they were at that time um, they didn't want anything to change perhaps and even you know there were people who didn't outwardly like President Assad and the regime and I guess saw for what it was that it, you know if, if you say the wrong thing in the wrong, at the wrong time that you you know you, you'll be interned um, but for them life is quite good at that stage um, for people in Dara and people in you know people Places in uh, eastern Aleppo and eastern Damascus, it was a very different story. They did not have bank accounts, they did not have stable jobs. Uh, thousands of them came from eastern Syria um, because there was a drought for three years that destroyed much of uh, the country's agricultural production <coughs> at that time. They came to the poorer parts of the major cities looking for jobs. Many of them worked as taxi drivers, were very much disenfranchised, I guess, very much uh, unhappy with the regime. They felt that they had been forgotten. And at that stage, you had a growing divide between the urban middle class, so to speak, that were relatively happy with where they were, didn't want regime change, as it happened in Egypt at that stage, and these people on the periphery who were facing a very difficult situation uh, in, indeed. At that time, in the first couple of weeks, There was a multiplication of uh, pro-government propaganda. So all the radio stations and the TV stations in Syria were co-opted by the regime to essentially put out this message that Syria is strong, that Bashar al-Assad is, 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 is right and powerful and does, does right by the, uh, the Syrian people. Um, and it was a, a sensory overload, I think. Even you know, as a foreigner myself at that time, I got a sense that this is... This is really, really something that, in every aspect of public life, you drive down the streets and you see the posters everywhere, and you turn on the radio um, in the in the the, bu the bus or the micro in your car. You get the same message. You go home and you put on TV, the Syrian TV at least, and you get the same message over and over. Um, of course, for people who who chose to watch Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya 
there was obviously a very different message for why you had people phoning in from the per peripheral towns like that are like Banias that stage um, from areas of eastern Damascus and um, you know at that stage this I think increased this divide between the urbanites and between the uh, the rural poor moving forward now there were a couple of attempts by the international community to force the Syrian government to um, open up. So in late, in November 2011, the Arab League <coughs> sent a group of observers to Syria to essentially see what was happening. Uh, the, the, the Assad government welcomed them and said, you know, we're, we're abiding by international, by the Arab League. Uh, you asked us to open uh, our country up to you to see what was happening, and we're doing it, so on. At one stage, uh, I went with the uh, an Arab League contingent in um, January of last year, almost two years ago now, to a town called Rankous, which is about an hour north of, of Damascus. What happened essentially was that we drove in a convoy from Damascus. We got to the first uh, roundabout outside the town. The Arab League observers got out of their, their cars, which were escorted by Syrian government troops, were told by the soldiers at this checkpoint that the town of Rankous, which was just over a hill, was in control of uh, rebels, insurgents as they call them. And the soldiers said, the government soldiers said, that we can't guarantee your safety if you go there. So for about a half an hour, the Arab League observers walked around this, this roundabout, essentially, spoke to some of the soldiers there. There were a number of checkpoints. There were passing people in passing traffic. There. And of course, with us was a, a large contingent of Syrian media. So whenever the Arab League uh, observers would go to speak to some individuals or some locals, the Syrian uh, state media was right on their shoulder. So as the Arab League representatives spoke to the average taxi driver, you had the Syrian government's uh, TV presenter with the camera and with the, the microphone on one side and on the other side you had some security elements so obviously the guy the taxi driver in the car is saying everything is great that Bashar al-Assad is, is, is excellent and you know alhamdulillah everything is, 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 is fantastic in Syria and this is a foreign plot and so on um, at one stage one taxi driver wouldn't stop he drove through the checkpoint and one of the security I was standing to one side of the one of the security guards he kind of he, the way he he, he he looked at this taxi driver who wouldn't stop was 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 really quite menacing. Um, a half an hour later, as I say, uh, a Syrian uh, government's army officer arrived on the scene of the roundabout and said, you're free to go into the town, we can't go with you and we can't guarantee your safety. The Arab League observer said, okay, we won't go in. They got in the convoy, drove back to Damascus. I drove with them as I was covering them that day. Uh, there were some journalists in the New York Times and the New Yorker magazine stayed, went into the town by themselves. Two hours later, the Syrian government began shelling uh, the town. Um, the point of, of, of all this is that this is what was being reported, A, by the Syrian media, and B, by, of course, the, uh, the, the Arab League observers, that, you know, for the most part, everything was fine and people were happy with the regime and so on. Meanwhile, two hours later, shells were, were falling on the town inside. The Syrian regime enacted 
a dual policy, I guess, of soft power and hard power uh, early on in the, the revolution. What they would do every evening is get a group of priests, uh, Shia sheikhs and Sunni sheikhs around the table on TV, and uh, they would pray together in Christian prayers, Islamic prayers, giving the idea that Syria was, was united. And this was very important, I think, for minority groups, um, uh, particularly Christians, at least, in, in, in my experience, that you know the Syrian regime is a voice for them. This is our priest on TV. He is obviously uh, supporting the government. So, for the most part, this is what we should do, too. At the same time, you had a number of, um, I guess, debate programs on, on Syrian TV <coughs> and on a, a second TV channel uh, run by, um, financed by, at least by uh, Rami Makhlouf, the uh, president's brother-in-law. So you would have a group of young people in a very well, very choreographed kind of situation. They would come on television and uh, they would be interviewed by a, a, a Syrian host and you know, they would be asked, what's your, your qualms, what are your problems, do you have a job, all these kind of issues. Um, and to a degree, there was a little bit of pushback at that stage. And of course, for everyone that watched this, saw that you know this is something new. We hadn't seen this before in Syria ever before. There is some criticism of criticism of the regime. At the same time, um, the Syrian government, the, the parliament, um, voted to end emergency laws, obviously in in, in name only. Um, so, to a degree, for the Syrians who wanted to believe that the regime was right and that the revolution itself was a form plot. There was something for them to show them that, in fact, yes, the regime is um, is is kind of uh, addressing our concerns. We're seeing things on television that we'd never seen before, that people were criticizing the regime. <clears throat> At the same time, you would see also on Syrian state television um, kind of montages of kind of Syrian cultural history of the famous tourist sites, how beautiful Syria was, how unique its history was. And of course, when people watched uh, Al Jazeera, they would see pictures of tanks firing on mosques, people getting killed, people getting gunned down, dead bodies and so on. This idea, of course, of the montages of the, the, the historical sites were that this is peaceful Syria. And this is peaceful Syria under the Assad regime, and this is peaceful Syria for the last 40 years. This is how it's been with us. And this, of course, is the revolution, what you see in Al Jazeera. And this is a very, you know, this is not what you want at all. This is a very unstable situation. People, getting, people are dying for the most part. You know, I'm not sure if who, who of you, any of you here on Twitter, any of you follow the... Uh, follow Sana to, uh, Sana's English uh, Twitter feed. Um, it's until now, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable that they, they give inf information about uh, parties and gatherings and, and so on. You know, again, the idea is to present this idea that life is continuing, that everything is fine, that day-to-day -day life and activities are still uh, continuing in areas of the country that the regime controls, and that in areas of the country that the, the regime doesn't control, even though it doesn't expressly say that, of course, they were not represented uh, at, at all. The world revolution, revolts, uprising, civil war, for the first year at least, was never used. 
by Syrian state media. People refer to it as the crisis. Um, and of course, a lot of people would copy essentially what people were saying on television and, 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 and that, I think. Um, of course, you know, what, everything I spoke about until now is about elements of Syrian society that were relatively well-to-do, relatively stable, didn't want things to change, had seen the Syrian government reacting to what they believed was this revolt, this, this crisis specifically, and were for the most part convinced uh, by the government. The hard power also, what you would see on television, pictures of the Syrian government, uh, the Syrian army firing rockets, soldiers marching, pictures that you'd associate, I guess, with North Korea often, um, that the Syrian government was strong, uh, picture, lots of pictures of, of citizens throwing rice on, on soldiers, uh, you know, elderly women kissing soldiers and so on, people love the army and, and so forth. They would also do interviews with people who had, um, you know, done wrong things in the past and realized the, the mistakes of you know, what, what they had done, they would put them on television and say, yes, we spoke, so we were given money by um, some guy from Saudi Arabia or some guy from Jordan. Uh, they would play recordings of television conversations between the person that they had interviewed who had suddenly um, righted the wrongs of their past and, um, of course, completely fabricated. <clears throat> this also gives a sense that, you know, this is what's happening and this is the regime's position. I suppose one of the most, certainly in the first 12 months, you the most important element of the Syrian government's, how it sold its war, or you, was that there were a number of deadly bombings in Damascus, in Aleppo, um, during the first number of months. <clears throat> and of course, both Syrian television and newspapers would show these pictures, these awful scenes of, of charred bodies, of people blown to bits of cars on fire. Uh, they would interview people who would ask, you know, rhetorically, of course, is this your freedom? Is this, you know, is this your, this is what you want? Uh, and this kind of continuous loop, they would show, you know, for two a day, two days after a particular bombing. Uh, often it was um, military and security buildings that were targeted uh, this again reinforced this idea that this is not a popular revolution, a peaceful revolution whereby people went in the streets and called for Hariya. This was a violent and deadly and chaotic um, uh, situation. <coughs> so, you know, this was also for a, the, the section of Syrian society, again, uh, I must stress this, that were not directly involved in the revolution the silent majority, if we can still use that term today. People who were relatively happy with what they, they had, they recognized often that the regime was a, a, uh, a brutal entity also, but did not want things to get worse for them. This, of course, these bombings created quite considerable outrage and led the revolution to be associated, as I say, with this deeply unstable, deadly uh, new chapter in, in, in Syria. The result essentially, you know, a population confused and angry, and as I say, if not totally convinced by, by the, regime's, uh, uh, the regime's message. Until now, the government uses the same language over and over and over, and you can watch the Syrian 
media's uh, English or Arabic uh, uh, news um, updates on, on their Syrian state television's website or by the same languages used. You know, the army is destroy terrorists and terrorist dens. Um, you know, this every day the same kind of four or five words. Mil milit uh, militants, gunmen, dens, the same words over and over, reinforcing this idea of, of, of what was happening, of course, their own perspective. Uh, but each time they would defeat terrorists. Many of my, uh, my friends uh, still in Syria have been telling me for well over two years that the regime is winning. And of course, you know, it's, it, that's, that's not the case, that it's going to be over soon and, and, and so on. Um, another important aspect again in terms of, of of giving its message was that it would it co-opted a number of well-known actors filmmakers um, uh, musicians and that so at one stage I'm not sure if any of you were in Damascus in kind of the first few months you had posters of uh, the Syrian actor Dreyd Ham perhaps the, the most famous Syrian actor uh, contemporary, contemporary Syrian actor at least um, on every corner of every street in Damascus and in Aleppo and in, in parts of the government, uh, parts of the country controlled, still controlled by the governments. Um, his picture uh, calling for people to take responsibility, to be responsible. Um, oftentimes they would also appear on Syrian talk shows. So you had someone well known by the Syrian public for their acting work appearing in a political uh, space on television, talking to people about what they felt, what they thought was happening, and that these are obviously were important um, individuals, people you know that, that were looked up to, and that. Um, at one stage, there was a concert in Nemoin Square in Damascus, free of charge. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people went. Many of my friends went, not because the concert was free or because it was Wafi Habib this well-known Syrian singer, mm -hmm. but because it was, you know, lots of people I know went there because it was an opportunity to be close to girls and to mingle with girls and talk to girls, basically. As things continued, let's say into the second year of the re revolution slash uh, war, the tone used by Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya shifted um, away from interviewing activists and eyewitnesses of, of uh, government atrocities to a much more partisan uh, perspective, I think. Now, if you watch any of you, if you turn on uh, Al Jazeera Arabic, not the English channel, you, today you get a very one-sided view of, of what's happening in Syria. Um, for the most part, this again, this large uh, silent majority, we can't kind of quantify them. I think we can't measure them in terms of, of population, in terms of number. But when they see they, when they went to, to look for information about what was happening in there in the beginning, a year later they were getting a very different line. I think a much more partisan position, much more anti-Syrian government. When, of course, what was happening on the ground, what they were experiencing every day was quite different. Um, they felt, of course, that they were seeing, uh, you know, their, their experience of what was happening in Syria was very different from what Al Jazeera were publishing, and it was just the same. And, you know, not to the, obviously the same degree the Syrian 
uh, state media, but it was really a you know a very one uh, one dimensional perspective on what was happening in Syria. Always pro uh, rebel, anti Syrian government, and and that. And this really you know a lot of people I think turned off, got turned off by this uh, very much partisan uh, uh, message from Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya when at a time before a year previous they they were a an important uh, voice I think in, in uh, for Syrians in who wanted to hear what was happening in the, the the small towns around the country this of course is reflected by the fact that Saudi Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabian elements at least Saudi Arabian governments Qatari governments were m- much more involved in arming and in financing uh, particular rebel groups so this this is not something that happens uh, uh, by itself. The chemical weapons attack, which it seems a long a long time ago, uh, obviously only happened last August. This was, for me at least, just the latest way the Syrian government was able to twist things and present things to their own uh, ad- advantage. The regime was able to portray the, the chemical weapons deal, of course. I'm not sure to what extent you're familiar, of course. There was the use of chemical weapons in eastern Damascus in a town in the west, southwest of Damascus called Modemiyeh. Um, Russia um, uh, presented this idea that the Syrian government would give up its chemical weapons, and of course the Syrian government said, yes, of course, we'll do that, as you know, uh, Barack Obama was uh, seriously talking about uh, airstrikes on Syrian military targets. Um, the regime was able to save its military airports and airfields, its weapons, as a result of this chemical weapons deal. Of course, as ghastly as the use of chemical weapons is, it only represents a very, very small percentage of the overall war, uh, the government's war on, on rebel uh, elements. So, of course, they've given up this card, but they still have a whole, you know, close to a full pack that they can still work with in terms of their conventional military assets. Inside Syria at that stage, um, the regime initially blamed rebels for this use of chemical weapons. Uh, pardon me, initially denied anything happens and then blamed rebels. Um, there was some work done by the Wall Street Journal, I think, in the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm not sure if you've read the article, you should. It's very interesting. Whereby they have, uh, for the most part, um, presented at least the idea that the Syrian government was responsible mistakenly used chemical weapons it had for on a number of occasions used chemical weapons against uh, rebel rebel forces but on a very small scale what happened on August 21st was an accident it shouldn't have um, have been as deadly as it was um, but read that Wall Street Journal article it's, it's interesting at the same time you over the previous two and a half years you had this message that I've been speaking about that these areas of eastern Damascus, these areas under rebel control that had fallen out of the Syrian government's um, control, were bad spots. That bad people live there. If you if you live there, you're you're anti-government, regardless of, of, of if you were or not. But there was a sense that bad things were always going to happen to people who lived there. So let's say in in eastern Ghouta 
before the chemical weapons uh, war were used. People living in government-controlled Syria were not perhaps that surprised because, you know, this had been, they had known from personal experience that these were parts of the country and parts of Damascus <laughs> that had been anti-governments for a very, very long time. So this was, of course, the Syrian government's propaganda message was that this was the case, so that when the chemical weapon attacks happened, as I say, there wasn't a huge amount of uh, surprise, I think, from all, again, the section of Syrian society still living in government-controlled areas. For me, the most, the regime's smartest move, and we can discuss this further, I think, was to use the term Syria when it meant regime, when it meant us. So when, when they would say things on Syrian TV that the regime was strong, that Syria was strong, excuse me, they meant the regime. They replaced the regime, the government, with the word Syria. And of course, for Syrians, their national identity, like any country, is a very uh, important thing. But the Syrian regime ma managed to, 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 to use this word, to use the word Syria, uh, to represent themselves. So if you were against Syria, you know, the international community is doing things against Syria, that, that so on and so forth, that there was going to be an attack on Syria, when in fact, for us, uh, Westerners and foreigners and that, this wasn't an attack on Syria at all. This was a, an attack, this would be an attack at least, on Syrian government, the Syrian regime, on Syrian uh, uh, government military points. But of course, at back home, the Syrian uh, 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 media apparatus presented this as an attack on Syria. So they don't use, obviously, the word regime. They don't use the word government. Uh, the word they use is Syria. This is a, a really key point, I think. I would argue that the regime has collapsed. There have been defections, that it's perhaps using only two um, uh, divisions of the, of the Syrian National Army, the 4th Division and the Republican Guard. It has collapsed, but I think it's collapsed inwards. And what you have today is a much more durable entity that is much more much better at fighting wars less so at governance at creating jobs at keeping people in jobs at stabilizing the uh, the uh, the Syrian lira it's essentially i think that the Syrian government has brought the country to where it is to this violence um, chapter this is what the Syrian regime is good at it's good at uh, rounding up uh, dissidents, it's good at torture, it's good at military uh, issues, not so much good at governance, not so much good at creating jobs, very good at propaganda, of course. So it's, it's collapsed, I think, but collapsed uh, inwards. Why does this matter today? For people who still live in government-controlled Syria, A, they believe that there is a foreign conspiracy against their country, against Syria. B, they see the violence that has happened in other parts of the country as a result of the revolution, a place that are controlled by rebels. It's, it's a very dark place. There are um, some serious issues there. We can talk a bit 
more about that, I think, later. They don't want that. People still living in certain government-controlled areas do not want that life. And C, of course, is the foreign jihadi um, elements that, you know, for, for urban Syrians still in government-controlled areas, they share little or nothing in common with. They see people coming from the UK, from the States, from Canada, from Chechnya, to uh, fight a holy war in Syria. For these people in central Damascus, for people on the, uh, in the cities along the coast, uh, for Christians, for uh, the uh, Alawite population, they have little, nothing in common, of course, with these people. Many of these people go to nightclubs, many of the, the Syrians I'm speaking of, go to nightclubs, dress liberally, learn English, uh, learn French, are, you know, well-traveled in that. So what they see when they see these people coming from all different countries to fight jihad, to blow up checkpoints and whatnot, you know, this is the, a third important issue that they, they, they cannot identify with uh, at all. Today, almost three years, we're approaching three years of the revolt slash um, civil war. There's a huge sense of fatigue, um, not just... You know, there's a different type of fatigue, I think, in the rebel-held areas. Um, people are facing different issues there, but for, in, for, for populations still living under the, the, the Syrian government's control, there's a tremendous sense of fatigue. Um, this is likely to lead to less <coughs> activism um, and likely to lead to fewer people supporting the revolution in any sense or seeing the revolution as a positive thing. What people today are more concerned with is, you know, again in, in Damascus, they're more concerned with, with the mortars that are falling on their neighborhoods than they are with the, the international dimension and, and diplomacy uh, surrounding the, the, the broader conflict, I think. They have no time, they have no money, they have little electricity to be concerned by such issues. They're trying to get by day to day. They have seen how brutal um, <clears throat> the Syrian government is. They do not want to be involved in, in politics, and they're essentially waiting it out. A couple of anecdotal points. Um, <coughs> interestingly enough, in early 2011, I was granted a uh, year-long journalist visa by the Syrian Ministry for Information. And when you go to the Syrian Ministry for Information in the Meze area of Damascus, you see essentially what this, the, the Syrian regime is about. It's an old, decrepit building. Uh, it's something that many Syrians associate with the regime as opposed to the emergent private sector that was developing it. 2009, 2010, and early uh, 2011. Um, so you would go through, you know, the elevators don't work, there's, it's a, you know, the, the building is not clean, so you, the work, you go upstairs, the uh, half, some of the employees are asleep, you know, others are drinking tea, smoking cigarettes, don't appear to be doing much. So on one occasion I, I went to um, uh, the foreign media section where there was an employee I knew uh, quite well and asked him, you know, I want to visit Homs. You have to let me go at that stage. 
there were the government was allowing groups of journalists from Guardian, various other organizations, to go obviously in government controlled um, trips to Homs and Iran, various parts of the country. Um, I wasn't allowed because I was a permanent uh, member of the staff based in the city. Now, when I was in this office, I saw a bunch of English language newspapers, and at that stage, it was quite difficult to get the Guardian and the Times, uh, the International Herald Tribune, as it was known, and these kind of newspapers. So I asked him, like, "Could I take these away?" He said, "Yeah, sure, no problem at all." So I took some of these newspapers away. I went to a cafe and opened up the Guardian, and there was a story about the um, uh, some I can't remember exactly some specific event, but it said something about how the Syrian regime forces had killed uh, X number of people and whatnot. And under on this uh, short paragraph had been underlined. Uh, presumably by someone working in the Ministry for Information. So on one level, you see this decrepit building, no one's working, um, people there for, you know, jobs for life kind of, kind of thing. But underneath that, they're doing a job. They're seeing that the Guardian is writing very negative things about the, the, the Syrian regime. So it's something, um, you know, that's... Uh, Summing up, <clears throat> I think there's little to no control in the hands of individual media organizations in Syria. Um, the, the, the news comes from Sana and goes to all the other various uh, organiza media organizations in Syria. That's how it works. The violence employed by the regime has silenced many of the silent majority, which we can discuss again a bit more about, to what extent that even exists. The Syrian government took complete control of the public sphere in the first 12 months or so, and then changed its message to a case that it was at war after about a year, uh, 15 months or so. It was fighting foreign uh, jihadists, but took complete control of uh, all public space. Um, it changed the idea that a revolution was happening. It changed it from the, the idea that it was revolt that to, to a war funded by Saudi Arabia, by Qatar, by Israel even, uh, by Turkey, and overseen by uh, the United States. And I think that's it. Thank you very much.